0: So we're excited to be in the book of Mark because Jesus does some remarkable things and we're excited about Jesus doing remarkable things in your life. I really strongly believe that God is going to do that. Pull the mic up up to me. Okay, cool. All right. There we go. I believe that God's going to do some remarkable things in spite of our technology challenges here. Um, And so we're excited about learning that. So let's just read this together. Follow along at home here. We're going to read a lot of verses, but we're, we're okay with that because God's word is amazing. Amen. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on this Sabbath, he entered into the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And immediately in there, there was in the synagogue a man un, with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately... This is God's word. Thank the Lord for his amazing, inspired, inerrant word of scripture. So, you know, as I was growing up as a Christian, you know, I would read the red letter parts of the Bible. You have a red letter Bible, okay? Did you have one of those where everything that Jesus said was in red? And I would read those parts and I'd often be confused because Jesus said some pretty cool things, but he also said some things that were really heavy and really deep. And so, I, you know, I read some of the Old Testament, and that seemed pretty hard. And then I would read the epistles of Paul and James and Peter and the others, and, and I would be like, this makes sense because this tells me what to do. You know, since Jesus died, buried, and was rose again, you do this, this, and this. And here's the fruit of the Spirit, and here's how you be a good husband, and here's how you be a good dad. And I would find myself gravitating towards the epistles because it just, it just told me just the very simple way to live. And a lot of that red letter stuff was kind of complicated. And especially the Old Testament stuff seemed even more complicated. But now, through the years, what God has shown me is the Old Testament points to Jesus, as we clearly see every Sunday. But what Jesus said, even though it was difficult, what it helps me do is to get to know him better. And the more I study him, then the stuff that Paul commanded me to do and James and John and Peter it becomes more obvious because I know Jesus better through the Gospels. Man, Revolution Church, that's my goal, that as we study Jesus, we become more like him. Those of you who are parents, you've seen your kids that will copy you, and they'll do what you do. Have you ever seen your kids just sit there, and you're looking in the mirror, and you're doing something, and they start doing it too? It's because they study you. It's because they look up to you. It's because they love you. And so my thought is the more we look and study at Jesus in the gospel of Mark specifically, the more we will want to copy him to where he will be able to do the things that Paul and the epistles said, just like second nature. In fact, more really like the divine nature in us, the Holy Spirit working in and through us. So we start here in verse 1, and it says they went into Capernaum. Well, the Bible tells us that Capernaum was Jesus' town. That Even though he was born in Bethlehem, and then his family left to where? To Egypt, right? Then when they came back, they were in Nazareth. But when Jesus became an adult and started his ministry, he settled in Capernaum right there, or right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is what it probably would have looked like in biblical times. This is a rendition based on archaeology. And you see all the boat docks there and everything. Really fascinating. They estimate that the population of Capernaum, when Jesus was there, was about 1,500 people. So imagine a small town in Texas, you know, with about that many people. This is where Jesus centered in his ministry. Really opposite what we would have done. We would have said, let's go to the big city of Jerusalem, you know, or let's go to downtown Houston, Texas. But instead, he chooses a small town of Capernaum. In Matthew 9:1, it tells us that this was his own city. This is where he called home. And most likely, he lived with Peter and his wife, And James, Peter's brother, may have lived there too. And so Jesus preached and did more miracles here in Capernaum than anywhere else in all of the Middle East. And what was interesting about this town as well is there was a Roman garrison there that that was um, stationed with a Roman centurion. Now, you look at the word centurion, what does that mean? A century is how many years? A hundred. So this Roman centurion had how many soldiers? 100, okay? So you had 100 soldiers running this town, like the police, for 1,500 people. Because it was very oppressive, and they didn't want any uprising there. So Peter and Andrew lived there. Matthew was a tax collector here. And so if you watch The Chosen at all, the setting is in the place of Capernaum. And it says and immediately, and he says that word over and over again, doesn't he? And we saw that last week. We see it even this week. He's consistent with that. And it says, immediately on the Sabbath, which means the Sabbath started at sunrise. So as immediately, as soon as the sun came up, Jesus entered the synagogue and started teaching. And it says he went into the synagogue, and, which was a place of worship for Jews, and he had a, did what they normally do on the Sabbath, they teach. But you ever hear people say, oh, I don't believe in organized religion. I believe in God, but me and him, we have our own relationship And uh, I just kind of do my own thing at home, or I go out on the lake and I fish and I worship God and His creation there. And you see, that's not what Jesus did. If anybody had the right to do away with organized religion as far as it following a pattern, Jesus could have done that, right? But here, Jesus was committed to a time. He got up immediately, went to the synagogue so he wouldn't be late. It was a certain day. Of course, then it was Saturday. There was a gathering, it was a place in the synagogue. And there was a purpose. So he was committed to these things, and we should be too. We have a time. It's 10 a.m. on Sunday, the day we gather. The, The building is not important, as we've learned here at Revolution Church. It's the gathering of people. And we have a purpose to exalt God through his word and through praising his name, through partaking of communion, through prayers, through offerings, all those things that we see in the New Testament. And what do you call that? You can call it organized religion if you want to. But this idea that you do whatever you do, that's really an American thing. You don't see that anywhere else in the world. Everywhere else in the world, they believe in community. They believe in doing things together as a purpose, as a family of God. And so we should be committed as Jesus was. Of course, what was he doing? He was teaching. It's interesting about teaching because people don't really understand the difference between teaching and preaching. I had a conversation with someone recently that tried out our church but decided to go elsewhere. And, and this conversation kind of went like this. Well, we really like your teaching, but we're really more into preaching. And I know you're committed to going verse by verse through books of the Bible, but we really would like to hear topical messages about marriage and about raising children and things like that. And we prefer more preaching over teaching. And so I just kind of nodded my head and smiled and didn't really want to get into a discussion about it. But there's a lot of misunderstandings in that conversation. You know, you see, when it comes to preaching versus teaching, according to people, not according to the Bible, but according to just people's general opinion here in the 21st century, preaching is very emotional, okay? But teaching is intellectual. Another misconception is preaching is really application, tells me what to do and how to be a good husband, how to be you know, to be and communicate at work and how to do all these things. And preaching has more application, and teaching is really just information. Again, this is according to people. Preaching is motivational, according to people today. And that's why you hear so many sermons from so many megachurches today. That's really, you might as well have heard the same thing about a motivational speaker at work. It's just really, they read a couple Bible verses, but then they tell you how to be just a better you. And it's a lot of motivational speaking, but teaching is really educational. And according to pe- So therefore, according to people, preaching is entertaining. It's exciting. It's emotional. It's a- lots of application and lots of like, things like that. And so therefore, according to people, teaching is boring. And let me just tell you, this is a total misconception. There's three big problems with this way of thinking. There's a lot more than three, but there's three big ones. First of all, they're dealing with wrong definitions. The way they define teaching and preaching is not the definitions we find in the Bible. And if if teaching is a bad thing, let me tell you, if you read the Gospels, Jesus taught two times for every one time he preached. And he never preached without teaching. He did both at the same time. Sometimes he just taught, but whenever he preached, he preached and and taught at the same time. So I would like to be in the same company with Jesus on that. And the problem is, it's not an either-or. It needs to be a both. That we should be getting the teaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God And not based on man's definition of the two, but based on the Bible's definition of the two. So in Luke 20, verse 1, it says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And you see this all throughout the gospel, he did both. He was teaching and proclaiming the gospel. The two go together. Really, proclaiming is what preaching is. Teaching is a tool to proclaim that gospel. So according to the Bible, which... Is what matters most. Everybody said Amen. It's what matters most. Preaching is proclaiming. It is heralding. It is making an announcement of what is right. And um, but teaching is explaining. And the two don't go against each other. It's I'm proclaiming something, and then I'm explain what I'm proclaiming. So pr- according to the Bible, preaching is encouraging people. You know, don't give up. Don't quit. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And teaching is equipping. Here's what I can give you, tools so that you don't quit. The tools so you can be equipped to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Preaching basically says, hey, there's a fire. (laughs) And teaching is, hey, there's the exit. Right? Imagine running into a building and saying, hey, it's on fire, it's on fire. But all the lights are out because the power's gone out. And people are groping for the door. And you just tell them the building's on fire, but you don't tell them how to get out. Would you want to choose one or the other? You need both, don't you? I mean, if I just walked in and said, hey, there's the exit, you'd be like, okay, so wh- why? Okay? But if I said, hey, the building's on fire, that's proclaiming, preaching. And I say, there's the exit. That's the teaching, according to the Bible. And so, therefore, with this same analogy, preaching is, hey, you don't want to die. The building's on fire. And, and so you should stop, drop, and roll. Now I'm teaching, right? I'm teaching survival skills on how to stop, drop, and roll. And If people weren't moving out of the building on fire, I would start proclaiming, why aren't you people running, okay? And then teaching is that, hey, just because you don't see the flames, most people die in a fire, not of the burns, but of smoke inhalation. Oh, wow, that's an important fact to know so that you start running, right? So the two go together. Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So my goal as your pastor is to teach and preach. And I don't want to be labeled just one. It's it's funny. People will will often over the years come up to me and say, well, that was a really nice lesson. Because they don't want to call it a sermon because I don't hoop and holler like other people do. And I don't have one story after another after another. You know, and I don't wave a tissue or a hanky or whatever. And it's like all that is not preaching the way Jesus did it. Now, some people can use that style. That's fine. Okay, And my style is, I used to kind of preach like that. I used to be more uh, rambunctious, I guess, if you will. But that didn't make it preaching. It just made it emotional. It just made it more exciting and more passionate. And I try to balance the two. But I really believe that as, as your pastor, if I give you the information you need and I teach you what the scriptures say and I proclaim the urgency of the message, the two working together will help us grow spiritually so we'll be more like Christ. Paul told Timothy in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, preach the word, there's the word preach, be ready in season and out of season, and he tells him how to preach. Re- preach is reproving, hey, that's wrong, don't do that. Rebuking is saying you should stop it, and exhorting is here's how you can do it right, and how does he do it? With complete patience and teaching. See, it's one for me to sit there and, and yell and scream about sin, but if I don't tell you how to stop, And how to have the tools to walk in the Spirit? What good is that? That's like yelling fire, but nobody knows where the exits are. In fact, Paul goes on to warn. He says, "For the time is coming when people will not endure sound what teaching." And see, that's that's what people are saying. I want I want someone who preaches. You know, someone who can croon and hoop and holler and and be exciting and give me motivational speeches. And so people aren't enduring that anymore. But here's what's happened: they have itching ears. That they will accumulate to themselves teachers. Oh, I like this guy and I like that guy. and, and I, we, don't, we don't go to church building. We just stay home and we watch it and we just listen to all of our favorites. And, and what are they doing to suit their own passions? What makes me feel good? That the sermon has to make me feel good. And, and I'm not saying that feelings are bad. But if you're looking only for a feeling to, to suit your passions, then you're going, you're going to be led astray. It says they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Walt Kaiser, in his book Toward Toward Exegetical Theology, writes this, and bear with me on a long quote here. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, as the current line is, junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives, all sorts of unnatural substitutes, have been served up to her. And this analogy here he says, as as a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure their physical health is not damaged. Isn't that ironic? We're so about not eating junk food and taking care of our bodies, but when it comes to teaching the Word of God, we're saying, give me junk food, give me junk food. And by using foods or products that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies, simultaneously a worldwide spiritual famine Resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the word of God, as you would see in Amos, continues to run wild. So there's four quick points I want to make here from what we read in Mark chapter 1. After a long introduction here about teaching and preaching. Jesus' authority over scripture. Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus' authority over sickness. Jesus' authority over his mission. So first of all, Jesus' authority over scripture. It says that they were astonished at his preaching, no, at his teaching. The way that he explained the word of God, it just like the light bulbs were going off and the eyes were open, and they were just amazed. And why were they amazed? See that word for there, for that he taught them as one who had authority. You see, he he. he the reason Jesus could speak from authority is because he's the one that wrote the book, right? He's preaching from the Old Testament scriptures because we don't he doesn't have a New Testament at the time. But he didn't, it was also in contrast to the scribes. See, when the scribes got up and read the scriptures and then tried to explain it, they'd say, Well, according to Rabbi Shemuel, this is this and this. But some rabbis think it means this and this. And we're not really sure, but according to other rabbis, and they just kind of go back and forth about quoting everybody else and not really speaking with authority. Jesus said, No, this is what it means. And I don't have to quote any other rabbis, I know what it means. I am God in the human flesh, and I'm going to explain that way. And so what's interesting is now when I teach the Word of God, I don't speak with authority because I'm Jesus, obviously not, or because I know everything, but I can speak with authority based on I know how Jesus explained and interpreted the Old Testament, and the things that are plain as day I can present plain as day. Now, there are times that I come across tough scriptures, and I'll let you know, hey, I don't know if I fully understand it, The problem, though, is not with the scriptures. It's with me and my limited comprehension and intellect. But the word of God is is clear and authoritative. There might be 3% of the Bible that is, like, not clear and is up for discussion. But the main, most important doctrines, how to be saved, who is God, who is Jesus, all those things are abundantly clear in the Bible for anybody who will study them honestly. The reason there's so many different denominations that teach things differently is because everybody has their own agenda. But there's certain things in the Bible that are just abundantly clear that we can teach with great authority. The Washington Post said this back in in 2017. Liberal churches are dying, but conservative churches are thriving. And you can see that all over the place. You can see the boom of churches that preach the word of God with authority are exploding. And mainline denominations are dying and, and they are, because they teach the word of God, like, well, Jesus really didn't say this. And we don't really believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We just believe that's a metaphor. We don't take all that literally. And you know what? People have no respect for that. They're like, well, then why should I even come to your church? And we don't just make it up that the Bible is true and should be taken literally. It's proven itself because it's, it's produced prophecies that have come fu- that have fulfilled all throughout history It's scientifically accurate. Archaeology, on a daily basis, they're finding things that confirm that the Bible is true. So we're going to continue at Revolution Church to teach the Word of God with authority and believe that the Bible is what it says it is. The second thing is Jesus' authority over demons. It says, and immediately, there's that word again, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Stop and think about what that's saying. Jesus goes to church. And there's a possessed man. But nobody knows it but Jesus. And how long has this guy been coming to church demon-possessed and nobody even knows it? You see, demon-possession isn't always obvious. I don't think this demon-possessed guy walked in there and with his head spinning around and talking in a crazy voice and all that stuff. I think he was there, and Jesus is the one who noticed him. In fact, and then the demon-possessed man notices him, and he cries out. You see... Satan, I've learned through the years, and based on scripture and experience, Satan will send people into a church subtly to disrupt the work of God. I've seen that, unfortunately, way too many times. My, back in 1986, when I was a, took my first ministry position right out of Bible college, I was a youth pastor at Berean Baptist Church on the north side of Houston in the Greenspoint area. I had a good-sized youth ministry. It was, it was bigger than our church. and uh, But I had four teenagers in this church that were all siblings, ranging in age from 13 to 18. And they were all close in age, obviously. And they were very disruptive. They were very poor. So they always had needs. Every time I had a youth activity that cost money, they couldn't afford to pay, but they wanted to go. And then when they'd come, they would just be disruptive the whole time. When I was teaching, they'd be talking. When we go on youth activities, they'd be annoying. They did all kinds of things that were crazy. But I had, my view of that was kind of out of balance. There's a scriptural principle that we love the poor, and we love the unlovely, we do all those things. But there's also a scriptural principle that you don't let people disrupt what's going on in the house of God, too. And so I kind of was out of balance, and I was just loving them and loving and then loving them, as they were chasing away people from my youth ministry, and teens were like, I don't want to go there anymore, those kids are crazy, and they don't pay attention, I can't even listen anymore. And so I really put up this, with this for too many years. And I remember when we first started Revolution Church, there was a couple that came. And on the surface, they looked like great, like everything was cool and they loved everything. But behind the scenes, they were talking and they were trying to divide and they were just saying stuff that absolutely wasn't true about not only myself, but my wife and other people in our church. And, and they were just talking and gossiping like crazy. And I confronted it and they had to go. You know, if I just kept being nice to them and nice to them and not putting my foot down, they could have, would have continued to divide and cause problems. But thankfully, nobody really but bit into their bait on that. They just realized that's, that's weird. That's kind of crazy. But Satan will send people into your church to disrupt things. And you have to be on the watch out for that. In fact, you, there's a, another example of this in Acts chapter 16. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas are going through the streets and they're preaching. And it says, and as they were going to the place of prayer... Paul says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That's not good, okay? And she has the demonic on her and, she, and, her, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this little slave girl who was demon-possessed would predict people's futures and, and people would pay money to her owners because she's basically a slave and she's making money off the demonic. And she followed Paul and us Luke is the writer here crying out these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation now now look at that statement there is there anything wrong with what she just said I don't see anything wrong and yet she keeps saying it over and over and over again to the point that she's just annoying so think about this she is following the people of God saying the right things but she's really being annoying. In fact, that's not my word, that's Paul's. It says, and this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. He's like, this lady is really getting on my last nerve. He turned and said to the spirit, because she's possessed by a spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so here's this person who's following the disciples, saying these are men of God doing the work of God, but in an annoying way. And you know what? That can happen in church where people are here and they say they love God, or whatever. And But all of a sudden, everything they do is a distraction from the word of God, even though they might be saying the very thing. Proverbs 22, verse 10 says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Sometimes you have to tell someone, hey, if you can't stop disrupting, you need to step outside. You just can't be a part of this. And again, we haven't had to do that here, but this is what's happening in this situation where Jesus goes into a synagogue, and there's a guy who's part of the synagogue. And all of a sudden, everybody realizes, because he cries out, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? You know, And so there's things that can be hidden there. In verse 24, it says, what have you to do with us? Now, it said previously that the man had a demon or an unclean spirit, singular. So why the us? It's because the demon is now so in control of the man that he's speaking for the both of them. What do you have to do with me and this man that I possess who belongs to me? He said, have you come to destroy us? He said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it interesting that a demon knew who Jesus was, but the Pharisees, the religious people, didn't? That that says a lot. In Jude, verse 6, he talks about the destruction of the angels. This angel concerned, hey, is it judgment day? Are you coming to judge me, a demon? It says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains and under, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, follow me here. There are still demons roaming the earth today. But there was at one point in time, and I believe this is back in Genesis, when the, when the angels, the, the fallen angels, tried to cohabitate or did cohabitate with women, creating a Nephilim, like a giant race. And God said, no, 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 you're not doing that. They didn't keep their, he said, I'm going to put you in, those who did that, not all the demons did that, but those demons did, he put them in chains of darkness and put them that, down there in hell now. The rest are still roaming the earth, but some demons have gone away. Some people read this and say all demons have gone away. That's obviously not true because this would have happened before Jesus came and Jesus confronted demons. In Revelation, it says what he'll do with the rest of demons. He said, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, the one in the Garden of Eden, who is the devil and Satan. Just in case you thought that they were different people... John is writing here in Revelation that the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan are all the same person, and he bound him for a thousand years. Now, by implication, if he bound Satan, he's binding his demons as well. So if somebody said, We got rid of this administration or this president, well, obviously everybody who works for him is gone as well. And the same is true for Satan in this situation. And it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and by implication, his demons too, and will come out and deceive the nations. And this is at the end of the thousand-year reign. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So follow me here. Some demons have been placed in hell for now. Others are still roaming about, but when... The beginning of the millennium happens when Jesus comes to reign earth. An angel will come from heaven and take Satan, the false prophet, the beast, all the demons, put them in the bottomless pit. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus, for some reason, will let them loose temporarily. They'll deceive many, but then they'll be destroyed again, and then they will never come out. They'll be in the bottomless pit forever and ever, and that's God's plan. So this demon that Jesus is facing is saying, hey, I know who you are. Are you here to destroy me? Anyway, is this the end of the world? Are you fixing to judge me and all the world and put me, put me in the bottomless pit? And, of course, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. There's another time in the Bible where Jesus says, be silent. What was it? It was when he's in the boat, and there's a storm. And he says to the storm, be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, look at what he does, convulsing him. These are signs of what it's like to be demon-possessed, okay? That, that Jesus speaks directly to the demon, okay? Okay. Uh, people can go through convulsions. They look like they're having epileptic seizures. Don't hear what I'm not saying there, though. Not everybody with epilepsy is demonic-possessed. And it says, and he cried out with a loud, loud voice. I've heard stories of, I've never encountered this personally. I've heard stories of people who are demon-possessed. Their voice changes, like a small woman could talk like a deep, you know, the uh, voice of a, a man, a deep voice like a grown man. And then they came out of them when Jesus told him to do that. So, just to cover it, since we brought the topic of demons, just want to answer some things for you. There's a difference between possession and oppression. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot be possessed by a demon. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and the Holy Spirit is a holy spirit, so he's not going to share your body, your temple, with a, a demon. But if you don't know Christ, you can be possessed. If you do know Christ, you can be oppressed. In other words, from the outside, they can bother you, But they can never be on the inside ruling you. So there's a difference between possession and oppression. And it says, and they were all amazed. So they they questioned among themselves, what is this? Not only does Jesus teach with authority, but he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So here Jesus is showing he's not like any other religious leader around at the time. He teaches with authority. And when he casts out demons, they actually listen, whereas other teachers would pretend to cast out demons, but it never would be successful. And it says, and at once his fame spread everywhere. Guess what? In the Greek, this word at once, it's the same root word for, you guessed it, immediately. His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So my question for us this morning is how did that happen? How did it get to where Jesus became instantly famous When there's no newspapers, there's no radio, there's no internet, there's no Facebook, there's no social media, Snapchat, TikTok, none of that happening. There's no news channels, again, no printing press, but yet Jesus became instantly famous. How did that happen? You know, word of mouth, right? People told people who told people, and they were telling everybody because they were excited about it. How do we make Jesus famous in Pearland, and in Santa Fe, and Dickinson, and Houston, word of mouth. We've got to open up our mouths, and we've got to tell people. If they could do it then, with no internet, with no cell phones, no texting, what could we do with all those things today? And we want That's our job, is to make Jesus famous. Our next point here is Jesus' authority over sickness. Jesus' authority over sickness. There's the word immediately again. He left the house, the synagogue, I'm sorry, and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, let me make a quick point here. I grew up in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the first pope. And of course, popes and priests and bishops and cardinals aren't married. But here's Peter, the first pope, and he has a mother-in-law. And last time I checked, you can't have a mother-in-law without being married. So, it, And here's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. And this is not some small fever. This is something that's been going on for a long time, and she's doing, not doing very well at all, maybe at the point of death. Maybe it's 105 or 6 degree temperature. Who knows? And it says, And immediately, there's that word again, they told Jesus about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. So I want to show you a clip from the, the, the Chosen that I think depicts this pretty well. So here we go.
1: You hear? People usually aren't. Can I get you something warm to drink? I was just stoking the fire. You saw it first, you know. What do you mean? What I see in Simon. You were the first person to notice when no one else did. That connects us. My mother said I was drawn to his wildness and that I would regret it. I wonder what she'll say now. We're uh, going into town to sell these nets. We'll be right back. Stay here a moment, Simon. I just want to leave some extra money behind for Eden the DMR while I'm away. Put your nets down and go sit with your mother with Simon. He cannot make sacrifices that are not also yours. doing all of this, even when you are excited about it and proud of him. So, I wouldn't ask you to do this without taking care of a few things. (laughs) You mean? Plus, normal Simon is difficult enough. You think I want to travel with a worried Simon? my hand to the touch. We should get a doctor. There is no need. You? This is Jesus of Nazareth. You've never met him before. Welcome to my son-in-law's home. Thank you. What am I doing lying here? You had a terrible fever. And all of you staring down. Dasha, don't No one move. I'll be right back with Sandri. I love goat cheese. All right. That's
0: one of my favorite scenes. And uh, just give you a little picture of what Jesus did in healing the mother-in-law. And if you know, if you heal someone's mother-in-law, that's pretty amazing, right? I have a good mother-in-law, so I'm not joking on her there. So, um, all right. So Jesus has power over sickness. And it says, just like the video showed, that when he healed her, she began to serve everybody. And, just, and she didn't just get well a little bit. She got well immediately, and she started to serve. And you know what? If Jesus has saved you and he's healed your soul, guess what he did it for? So that you could serve other people, so that you could serve him. You weren't saved just so you could hold on to a ticket to heaven and do nothing and just go to church and be blessed by some preaching. You were saved to serve. Everybody has different gifts And abilities and talents. What are yours? And are you using them to serve the body of Christ? That's why Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, so that she could get back to serving others. And it says, in that evening at sundown of the Sabbath, now notice where this chapter started. It says at sunrise, Jesus went straight to the synagogue. So what's Jesus been doing? All day, he's been busy, and now it's sundown, and it's sundown of the Sabbath. Now, what that means is, he's been working all day, but number two, what that also means is, he could, what he's about to do in healing more people, he could have waited and not had an argument with the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath. But he's like, no, bring as many people in as possible. I want to just put it in the Pharisees' face and show them that I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and it doesn't matter. You, if, if you have an ox in a ditch on the Sabbath, Old Testament law said you could get it out. But the Pharisees were so legalistic, had so many rules. They're like, oh, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus like, that, how does that make any sense? So they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now, notice the distinction there between the two. They're saying they're sick or there's demon-possessed. You see, there's a myth going around about, demon, about sickness, that all sickness is caused by demons. So they'll talk about the spirit of cancer or the, the spirit of, you know, uh, anxiety or the spirit of this. And they blame all these diseases on demons. But the Bible makes it clear, not just in this passage, but in many others, that the two can and most times are separate. Sickness is one thing. Demon possession is another. It doesn't mean that they don't sometimes overlap, but what it does, definitely means is they don't always overlap. Verse 33 says, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city approximately 1,500 people were around where they could hear all this. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Again, separating the two, that not all sickness is caused by demonic oppression. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Remember what he said earlier to that demon, be silent and hear, same thing. Why is that so important that Mark wants us to know it twice, that he doesn't let demons speak? It's because that's the only power they have. Think about that. Jesus is Lord. And the only thing that the devil can do to you is lie to you. He can't do anything else unless God permits him to. But all he does is lie. And he tells you, you're not good enough. You're not worth anything. Your life is over. You've got so much shame in your past that nobody would ever listen to you. And the lies continue on and on and on. Jesus says, I'm not even going to let you speak which shuts them down because that's the only power they have. They can't do anything to you unless you let them. Now, since we're on that subject right there, how does that happen where people are demon-possessed? Well, think about this. There's something deep inside of us that knows there's a supernatural out there. And if we want to know what to do with our plans, what to do with our future, if we want to know some information that we couldn't know otherwise, we look to the supernatural. Well, who... Who should we look to in the supernatural realm to answer our questions about the future and the secrets of life? We should look to God. But when you say, no, I really don't want to look at God as he reveals it in the Bible. I want to look at someone else. I want to talk to someone else out there. And so who else is out there? There's Satan and his angels. And so if we open ourselves up by through a Ouija board or astrology, or heavy you know, death metal music or anything that's evil horror films and we're saying all these things that i want to get in touch with the supernatural out there that's evil and not god then that's an open invitation and you, you don't want to mess with those things okay and it says that he would not speak permit the demons to even speak so we've covered Jesus' authority over scripture over demons over sickness and now Jesus' authority over his own mission Look what happens here in verse 35. He's rising very early in the morning. Think about that. Don't just blow through that. The day before he got up at sunrise, went straight to the synagogue and was teaching for hours. Then he went out all day healing sick people, casting out demons, and doing all these things. All the way till sunset. And then it says at sunset, many people from the whole village came. So he was probably working hard till late at night. From sunrise to who knows when, midnight. But watch what happens the next day. Very early in the morning while it's still dark. Maybe 4 a.m., 5 a.m. All we know is before the sun, Jesus manages to get up. And what does he do? He departs and he went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. The day after his, um, his miraculous day full of all kinds of healings, and supernatural activity, when he is probably fully exhausted, he feels the na- need to do what? To pray. You think, wow, you think he'd be feeling the need to pray the day before. Well, I'm sure he did that as well. But well, I think he's thanking God for all the things that happened the day um, before. I think he's getting God, asking God for strength to continue to do those things. You see, sometimes after a great victory, you know what we do? We celebrate and we sleep in. But Jesus took time to pray. And Simon and those who uh, searched for him, they found him and they said, and this is kind of a rebuke, everyone's looking for you. As in, you're not where you should be. Why are we having to go around looking for you? We've got hundreds and thousands of people, or at least 1,500 maybe, uh, that are looking for you. You should be there, not out here by yourself. Let me tell you, God doesn't always work that way. God says, I don't care how many people are waiting on you. You need to spend time for me. Man, if that doesn't apply to Monday morning, I don't know what does. We think, oh, I got to get to work. I got a lot of people waiting on me. The person who's waiting on you first is Jesus, and he needs to hear from you. And you need to get away from a, to a quiet place where you can spend time with the Lord in prayer before you get to ministering to all these people and at your job and where else. And he said to them, "Let us go on to the next towns." <laughs> That's an interesting phrase. Wait a minute. This whole town of Capernaum is like at your doorstep just thinking you're the most amazing thing ever and let's go let's capitalize on that and he's like no no let's go to the next towns that i may preach there also that's why i came out in other words he's saying you guys are searching for me the reason i got out of town out into a desolate place to pray is because i wanted to know what does god want me to do next and god's plans aren't always our plans let me ask you you got some big decisions coming up in your life You need to get away and pray and find out what God wants because it may be obvious, like, oh, we got 1,500 people counting us us to do more of the same. That's what looks obvious to the human eye, but God may have something totally different. You could take this whole situation with the merger. It looks obvious that, wow, this is a slam dunk. We need a building, they need some people, here we go, boom, two miles away. But hey, you know what we need to do? We need to pray because as obvious as this may have been, be to us, God may have different plans and maybe move on to the next town in Jesus' words here. So it says, and then a leper, leprosy was a skin disease, an incurable skin disease that started from a virus within, and it manifested itself on the skin and started at the tips of the fingers, tips of the ears, tips of the toes, tips of the nose, anything, any extremities is where it manifested first, but it started on the inside, and it was incurable, fatal disease, that caused people to have to go away because it was highly, highly infectious. So people who had leprosy had to leave their family immediately. They just said bye and they out of there and they packed and they left out and they lived basically out in the woods and they counted on people to come and bring food and set it at a certain place and then walk away and then they'd come out of the woods and find it. And that's how they survived. And many people wouldn't even do that. But they, this leopard does something he's not supposed to do. He came to Jesus. It was illegal for a leper to approach anybody. In fact, if a a leper was walking down a road and saw other people, they had to yell three times, unclean, 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 so that people knew to get away from them. But here, this leper is walking up to Jesus, and he's begging or imploring him, and he falls down and kneels and says, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, notice how he asked. He doesn't say, if you can he knows Jesus can, but he knows it's up to God and his will and what God's choice is. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm going to name and claim it, and then I'm just, I'm going to declare that I'm healed, and I'm just going to have the power of positive thinking, and I'm just going to proclaim it and grab it and blab it, you know? And that prosperity gospel, that says you just speak it, and it will come true. That this leper has the right attitude. He's like, you know what, Lord? You choose to heal sometimes, and sometimes you don't. Let me give you two examples. the the cripple at the pool of Bethesda probably a hundred and some people crowded around this this, what they thought was a magical pool that when the water's bubbled they jumped in the first one in gets healed and Jesus walks around all kinds of sick and crippled people and talks to one guy and heals him and then walks out and doesn't heal the others he could have but he chose not to second example the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. I believe it was ba- he was losing his eyesight again, which is ironic because that's how he, what happened when he first got saved. But I believe his eyes were getting worse. He even says some things in the epistles about how he's having to write his letters so big because he can't see very well. And he asked God three times to take away this physical illness, and God said no. The Apostle Paul. Oh, Paul, you're not living right? He's the most godly man on the planet. Well, you're not doing enough for me? He planted more churches than anybody on the planet. Well, you're not doing enough scripture. He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody, and God says to him, no. Have you ever prayed for someone that they would get well, and they didn't? Does that mean God doesn't love you or them? Does that mean God doesn't care for you or care for them? No, God chooses to heal and not to heal at different places, different times, and that's up to him. And we don't tell God what to do. We don't dictate to God what to do in our prayers. We ask him, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. And that's what this guy did. And look at what says Jesus' response is moved with pity. The word could also be translated compassion. Jesus, I, I imagine Jesus, tears coming to his eyes as he's looking at this guy, thinking of all that he's been through. He's had to leave his family, his job, and everything, and he's out here dying a slow death. And it says he stretched out his hand. Now, wait a minute. Think about that. He's not even supposed to be even close to this guy, or he'll, he might get leprosy from a human perspective, right? And how many times has Jesus just spoken the word and healed someone? But Jesus chooses to touch a guy with a skin disease. Because guess what? Jesus is so holy that, that the skin disease doesn't spread to him, but Jesus' healing spreads to the leper. And it says, and he said to him, I will. In other words, I choose to be clean. And immediately, there's that word again, he's healed. And um, I'm going to show you a clip of this scene here from The Chosen. The only thing I don't like about it is I wish the healing had happened like, immediately like the scripture says. So let me show you this clip
1: here. Leopard, stay back. Cover your mouth, don't breathe his air. Don't come any closer. It's okay, John. It's okay. Rabbi, 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 Rabbi. 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 you can hold this don't disease. Don't... You can... Please. Please. Thank you. I I know it. I know it. I know it. What can I what can I ever do? Do not say anything to anyone. You don't seek your own honor. Tell people. Go. Show yourself to the priest. Let them inspect you and see that you are cleansed. Make the proper offering in the temple as Moses commanded. And go on your way. Who has an extra tunic? Just one of you. Just one of you. That's enough.
0: of what it may have been like for jesus to do that so here it says he stretched out his hand and he touched him now can you imagine being in that situation but jesus is not afraid to do so because jesus knows his power is more powerful than the leprosy and what compassion that would have taken jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him see that you say nothing to anyone And this is one of the great ministries that we see in the Gospels. Jesus is continually telling people, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Now, I could spend an hour on this, but I won't because it's already been long enough. But one of the reasons Jesus did that was because the the Jews had a very false idea of what the Messiah was going to be like. And he didn't want the reputation about the miracles spreading faster than the teaching of the Word of God. So um, leprosy is a picture of our sin, First of all, leprosy was an inward disease. So is sin. We think of sin as the things that we do. No, sin is who we are. It just results in actions. The sin is from inside our hearts. Jesus says it's from within a man and that sin proceeds out of the mouth. It's not what we do on the outside. So you could could put yourself in a sterile, sinless world where nobody around you is sinning, but yet you inside will still have the same problem like leprosy. Secondly, lepros- leprosy was a loathsome disease. It made people stink as their flesh was literally rotting on them. It, was, it looked horrible, and and yet at the same time it numbed people. It is possible for a leper to be leaning on something that was hot or on fire and not feel it because of the numbness. And sin does that to us too. It makes us numb to where we really don't even feel. We're like, this is not so, it's so bad, it's not so painful. And sin could be destroying us, and we don't even know it because we become numb to our own sin because of addiction or whatever it may be. Leprosy was separ- a separating disease. When someone had leprosy, they had to leave everybody and everything. And you know, sin will do that. It'll break up your marriage. It'll come between you and your kids. It could cost you your job. It can separate you to where you have nobody around who even cares but you. Just And sin will do that to you like leprosy. Number four, The leper's person could not cure themselves. There was nothing they could do. A doctor couldn't say, well, if you eat better or take this medicine or spend some time in the sun, it'll all go away. No, it was incurable. And that is the fifth thing is only Jesus can heal the leper. Leprosy is like your sin. Only Jesus can heal it. It says he went out and he began to talk freely about it. This is the leper, okay? Isn't it interesting Jesus tells demons, don't talk and they obey. And here, Jesus tells a new believer, don't talk and he disobeys. That's a whole other story right there. But he began to spread the news, but watch the result of this. And you probably have read this 30, 40 times and may not have noticed this. He spread the news so much that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Now, wait a minute. Did you see what just happened there? Who used to be not be able to go freely about, but had to hang out in desolate places? The leper. And Jesus was in town with the people, doing what he wanted, when he wanted. But then Jesus switched places with the leper. Now the leper is the one who's clean and inside, freely talking about Jesus. And Jesus is forced to leave town and go out in the wilderness in desolate places. And he can't freely move about as he wants. Do you see the beautiful picture of the gospel here in this story? Jesus trades places with the one. He suffers because of what we've done. Think about that scripture. Jesus was moved with pity. Jesus looks at your situation. He says, oh, you're horrible. I'm going to send you to hell. No, he says, I have pity for you. I have compassion for you. And therefore, he stretches out his hands and he touches us. And he says, if you're willing to be saved, I'm willing to save you. And at the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, your leprosy, he says, it happens. Do you see the beautiful, the beauty of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 6 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've never been saved, that Jesus has never touched you, and you've never said, Make me clean of my sin, forgive me of, of all that I've done wrong, today's the day to do that. Romans 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You think that leper knew Jesus was Lord, that he was God who became human flesh? And then you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, and that God on the third day rose from the dead. If you will make Christ the Lord of your life and believe, the moment you cross that line of faith, you become a new creation in Christ. You go from being a leper who is living death, the walking dead, to someone who is born again and made new. Have you ever made that decision? I challenge you right now for everybody who's watching online to pray there may be someone that we don't even know watching this live stream who's never crossed that line of faith and made that decision to make christ the lord of their life and trust Him for the forgiveness of sins so pray and if if that's you today you've never been saved I, i want you to reach out right now bow your head close your eyes and have a conversation with god And it could go something like this. These aren't magic words. The prayer doesn't save you. It's the trusting in your heart that makes the difference. But it could be something like this. Lord Jesus, I know that sin is eating me up from the inside. And I'm dying. And I deserve it because I've done so many bad things. So many sinful, selfish things. But I believe that you died and took all those sins away. Every single one of them, past, present, and future. And you took them on the cross where I should have been and that you buried them all with you, and that on the third day you rose again with eternal life for all who believe. So I trust you right now. I make you the Lord of my life. I give you everything because you gave everything for me. I believe in you, and I thank you for forgiving me of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, man, let me know. Text me, call me anytime today, and let's talk about your next step as a new believer, as a new child of God. So right now we're going to do question and answer. So if you get my phone there, Tori's gonna to help me with Q and A, and so I guess you'll grab this mic right here, and uh, hopefully you guys send in some great questions here today. So if you're watching online, text it right here, and, um, and we'll be glad to answer that online, uh, live right now.
1: Okay, let's see. And
0: look for these up here at top as well. There might be some. Okay,
1: yeah. I know that. Charles. Okay, so can you clarify conservative churches thriving according to the Washington Washington Post that sounds backwards i thought because of itching ears liberal churches would be thriving
0: okay so it seems like a contradiction but it's not so christianity in america is declining okay but there's uh, the number of true christians is growing if that makes sense in other words a generation ago 65-75% of people claim to be Christians, but they didn't, weren't really active in church. But the number of people actually are going to church, are, are leaving their mainline churches, and going to ter- churches that teach that the Bible is true, and not just f- metaphors and analogies and myths and legends. Okay? So while the number of people claiming to be Christians going down, the ones who are still practicing are leaving the liberal ones going to conservative ones.
1: Does Jesus still physically heal people today? If so, does he heal at the same frequency today as he did in biblical times? If not, why not?
0: Great question. So the definition of a miracle is something that obviously is rare because if miracles happened all the time everywhere, we wouldn't call them miracles. We would call that normal. So um, I believe that Jesus during his ministry did a high level of miracles to prove his messianic office. And so, therefore, in that, like, for example, a town of 1,500, you'd have hundreds, if not half the town, having healings and miraculous things going on. I don't think we could say that going on in any particular town. But to answer the first question, does Jesus still heal? Yes, he does. Um, So he's obviously not physically here. But you can pray that God would take the cancer away, and you pray like the leper, if you will. And if it's his will, he will. Okay? Um, Next question. That was it. That's it. All right. That's all the questions for today. So let's. We're gonna read this scripture. Read it together in the living room right here. Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse uh, eleven. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you. You all have a great day.